Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If someone came up to you doing one of those, uh, you know, man on the street, person on the street interviews, and asked you, what is the human race's greatest problem? What would you answer? I'm sure people would uh, say things like uh, poverty, global warming, terrorism, maybe guns, nuclear weapons, Donald Trump, the left. And we could certainly debate those answers and their validity, but but the one who actually knows matter-of-factly the true answer to that question, God, he doesn't give any of those answers. His answer is very different, it's very clear, and it's really very offensive. God makes clear in his word the human race's greatest problem is sin. And it's not only because it's sin that's at the root of many of what our answers would be as to what the world's greatest problem is. It's not just that, nor is it just the sin out there, but it's the sin in here. It's the sin in our own hearts. And that's far worse because that not only leads to our physical death, no one escapes that, we're all going to die physically, but it also leads to eternal death in hell away from God. Now, that's offensive, The gospel is offensive to the extent that our society even thinks in categories of sin any longer. The idea of someone saying to me that I am a sinner going to hell is arguably the least tolerant, most offensive thing you could ever say to me, yet that is Scripture's clear diagnosis of our greatest problem. We are guilty sinners headed towards certain death, and there's nothing we can do about it on our own. But as offensive as that might be, I hope that by the end of today's study, you want nothing more than to be identified as a sinner. The reason being, that is exactly who Jesus pursues, who he died for, and who he calls to come follow. In love, Christ came to suffer and die for sinners. It's because of our sin that Christ died. But it is only those who recognize that they are sinners in need of the Savior who then repent and believe in Christ who are going to enter into the joy of salvation and fellowship in Christ. Those who do not think they're sinners or who think they can make it on their own will never be saved. So this is real. Our our subject today is real, but it's also beautiful as we see the character of Christ and His love of sinners. And this is especially cool to be able to to do today on Palm Sunday as we celebrate Christ's announcement that He is the King of the universe. As in our text today, we have a picture of our King, who He pursues, and how that's a model for us today. So let's get into this. As was just read, verse 13 begins with, He went out again beside the sea... 
So let's set the scene. What did he go out from? Well, that connects us to the first 12 verses of the chapter that Chris led us through last week. He went out from the house that he just healed the paralytic in. That event caused a stir, and we're told in verse 13, it resulted in a crowd following him as he left the house, now walking down the seashore, teaching with a crowd of people following him. Remember back in Mark chapter 1, 38, Jesus tells us that's the reason he came to preach. And what did he preach? Again, we find that answer back in the first chapter, verse 15. He preached, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus preached repentance and faith. Although all of his miracles were awe-inspiring and showed his love, care, and grace toward people, none of his miracles saved anyone. As it says in Romans 10:14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without preaching? It's through the preaching of the gospel that people are saved. So Christ does this incredible miracle. And now that he has people's attention, he preaches. So he's walking along the coast, preaching to the throng, following him. And then in verse 14, the most unexpected of things happens. As they're walking, they pass a tax booth with a tax collector sitting inside named Levi. By the way, Levi, more commonly known to us as Matthew, he would go on to uh, write the Gospel of Matthew, become one of the, the 12 apostles. But of course, no one knows any of that at this point. What they do know is they hate this guy, which, which we're going to get into in a minute. But Jesus apparently interrupts his own teaching to say the most unexpected thing. He simply says to Levi, follow me. And you know what? He did. It says he just got up and followed Jesus. This is, this is really a pretty crazy interaction. It's crazy for a few reasons that we'll get into, but it leads us to the first truth that we see in Jesus' pursuit of sinners and what it models for us. And that is, he pursues us. Jesus pursues us. This strikes right at the heart of the amazing grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I began by asking what the greatest problem of the human race is, and, and I said God's answer, Scripture's answer, is sin. The horrifying result of our sin is traced through the, the first few chapters of Romans. As Romans 1.18 says, by our unrighteousness or our sin, we suppress the truth. It doesn't say we don't know. It says we know the truth, but in our sin we suppress it. We reject God and His truth, and instead we live in the lie that we're God, and so we follow our own path, which leads to, as verse 21 says, our thinking becoming futile and our hearts being darkened. So that's why by the time you get to Romans chapter 3, it says, the entire human race is unrighteous. We're all sinners. No one is good. No one is seeking for God. As it says in John 3.19, and this is the judgment. The light, Jesus, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's a, a horrifying, devastating truth and result of our sin. We are all sinners dead in our sins who reject the truth, who do not seek God because we love the darkness rather than the light. Yet it is that horrifying hard truth that points us to the extremely beautiful grace of the gospel. That God himself, Jesus himself, pursues us. He left heaven to come as a man to seek and save those who weren't even looking for him and who don't deserve it. 
But in love, He came and saved us. The beautiful one pursues us, the sin-marred, depraved rebels. How beautiful the gospel is. And Christ pursuing us when we are not pursuing Him is a model for us as well, for those who have been saved by the beautiful gospel. As Christ says in the last verses of the Gospel of Matthew, the, the Great Commission, the marching orders for our lives were to make disciples of the nations by going, teaching, baptizing. We're to live on mission, pursuing sinners in love with the Gospel just as Christ pursued us in love. And that leads to the second truth we see in Jesus' pursuit of sinners and what it models for us. It is a radical command to follow Him. I said a few minutes ago this interaction between Christ and Levi is crazy for a few reasons. This is one of them. When Christ stops and commands Levi to follow Him, dude just gets up and follows Him. Now, certainly Matthew was aware of Christ. At this point, word was certainly getting around town about who this guy was, what he was doing. But building on the previous point, what this implies is God was pursuing this man in love by working on his heart. As we just said, Scripture is clear. No one's seeking God. We're dead in our sins. We love the darkness, not the light. And if there was anyone at this time who embodied that, it was a tax collector which is the next crazy aspect of this event and, and why I said those who were with Jesus that day almost surely would have hated this guy. That, that Christ would go out of his way to initiate this conversation with this tax collector and call him to follow him would have been unthinkable to the Jews who were with him that day. I mean, if you wanted to destroy your ministry, drive all the people uh, following you away in disgust, associate with the tax collector. Ask him to be a part of your crew. The reason being, tax collectors were some of the most hated people in society, uh, really equivalent to prostitutes at the time. Why? Well, the Romans, the, the world's superpower at the time, taxed those, of course, that it was in power over. The Jews hated the Romans, hated their occupation of their God-given land, and they most certainly hated paying taxes to the Romans. I, I'm, I think... We can probably relate to that. I'm, I'm 1099, so my taxes don't come out of my paycheck automatically. Every quarter I have to sit down and write estimated tax payments, and every time I have to do that, I'm reminded of what a horrible sinner as I am. As I'm writing this check, cursing the government as I send thousands of my dollars away. But this isn't just about being angry about paying taxes. It's paying taxes to the hated Romans. It would be like my having to write my estimated tax payments to you know, Russia or Iran or some country that, that came in and, and conquered us and occupied us. But in this system, you didn't write estimated tax payments. Tax payments were, weren't automatically deducted from your paychecks. Instead, they hired tax collectors to go around and collect, uh, collect taxes. But not only that, a tax collector's salary came from whatever he extorted on top of the taxes collected. So, in other words, if you owed $1,000 in taxes, the tax collector might show up and say you owe two grand. 1000 goes to Rome, he keeps the rest. Oh, and, and by the way, he has the power of Rome behind him, so go ahead and try and challenge him and not pay. We'll see how that turns out for you. It's, it's not unlike the mafia. I mean, who in their right mind is going to say no? So you pay... But you hate them. And then on top of all of that, Matthew was a Jew. He was getting rich extorting fellow Jews on behalf of the Romans. 
He sold his soul for wealth. To be a tax collector meant you probably had to be a person that was pretty much just about yourself and money. Presumably, he didn't care about his reputation among the Jews. He didn't care about being an honorable person. He cared about making money. He, he was hopeless. He was the most vile of the vile. He was the last person anyone would have expected would be saved, would respond to the call of Christ, would follow him. Yet, that is exactly who Christ pursues. Because Christ isn't in the business of managing his brand, so the world gives him more likes. He's in the business of saving sinners, including the most vile of sinners, the worst of sinners, and Levi fits that bill. As I said, God was working on his heart, so when Christ called, he responded. And like I said, this call and this response is radical. We, we can't miss that. The command of Christ to follow him is a radical calling. It means turning from yourself, your sin, your desires, and turning to Christ, believing in him as Savior, living for him and his glory in joyful dependence and obedience. It is a call to renounce everything. In fact, Luke's recounting of this same story in chapter 5 of that book says exactly that. It tells us that Levi rose and follow, followed him, and then it adds, leaving everything. For Levi, that would have been no small thing. He presumably had a lot to give up. Even though tax collectors was de were despised, it was one of the few sure ways to make wealth in society at the time. There presumably would have been a line of people waiting to fill his spot. It wasn't going to be there when he came back. But despite that, he didn't blink. He knew Christ was his true treasure, so he left all, and in that he gained everything. The eternal riches of salvation and fellowship in Christ. And it's no different for us. Anyone who preaches a Christ who is here to help you fulfill your dreams, to give you everything you desire in this world, is not preaching a true Christ. Anyone who preaches a Christ that is an add-on to your life, but isn't, doesn't really make any real demands on your life, but hey, you, you get a get-out-of-hell-free uh, card, you don't have to go to hell, sweet, is not preaching the true Christ. Christ did not suffer and die to help us realize our sinful desires or uh, to just get us out of hell while we go on living our lives however we want. He suffered and died to give us new life with new desires. And this new life is wonderful, but it has demands. And so he tells us, count the cost. He promises those who are his are going to suffer. He says the world will hate us just like it hated him. He tells us the gospel divides families. Anyone who is preaching the opposite of what Jesus himself preached is not preaching the true Jesus. But Jesus didn't say these things because he's mean. He said them because he knows that we, we were created to find our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest peace, our greatest love in Christ. Christ will not allow us to use him to get the things of this world that we think we so desperately need, but are ultimately going to fail to satisfy and lead us to death. No, he came to, suffer, uh, to, to offer true life and fellowship in him. So following him means giving up all, but just like Levi, what we get in return is everything. Christ and the immeasurable riches of salvation in him. Christ is our true treasure. 
So the command to renounce all and follow him is a radical call of love that saves and satisfies. Which dovetails into the third truth we see in Jesus' pursuit of sinners and what it models for us, and that is we must respond. There's no Switzerland when it comes to Christ. There's no neutral. It's like that scene in the Ocean's Eleven remake when, when Danny Ocean, George Clooney, says to Matt Damon's character when he, he meets him to recruit him to the team to knock off the casinos and te- uh, steal Terry Benedict's millions. First thing he says, you're either in or you're out. Right now. A non-response is a response. We can't not respond. We either follow Christ or we reject him. As the, the Spirit writing through Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for, those things, for these things? Those who bring the gospel bring an aroma. Either an aroma of eternal life to those who believe and follow Christ, or an aroma of death to those who reject Christ and the gospel. But either way, a choice has been made. Every one of us must respond, and our eternity is based on it. Which leads us back to the narrative, picking up in verse 15. After Matthew or Levi follows Christ, this this great feast takes place. Again, Luke's recounting of of this. He has the detail that Matthew threw this feast in his house. Presumably, the people there were his friends. Maybe this was a going away party because he was going to be leaving to follow Christ. We're not exactly sure, but this feast has quite the guest list. Who's on the guest list? Well, verse 16 has these guys, the Pharisees, summing up the whole crew as being sinners and tax collectors. And this is where the Pharisees come in. Although they will play an increasingly significant role as we continue to study Mark, really become some of Christ's greatest enemies. This is the first time we come across them in this book, so a bit of background's in order. The word Pharisees in Aramaic, where the word derives, means separated ones. They were separated from the common people, as we see here. This is the main reason they, they so often came in conflict with Christ. They couldn't reconcile their understanding of piety and godliness with Jesus' actions and claims to be God. How could Christ, a teacher claiming to be God, associate with tax collectors and sinners? In their thinking, these impure, unclean people were exactly the people to avoid. I mean, if you're truly righteous, you don't go out of your way to hang out with sinners. And actually, the the term sinners used here is an epithet to describe common people. In other words, people who were not trained in the law and so who didn't follow the the Pharisees' extra-biblical strict standards. So who exactly were these guys? Well, that kind of gives us the hint. Essentially, the Pharisees were the the shapers and, and gatekeepers of Judaism at the time. They were entirely devoted to the study of the law, the, the Torah, the first five books of the, of the Bible where the law of God is extrapolated. But they didn't only study it, they were absolutely committed to its daily application and observance in all things and to help ensure that they followed it to a T. They also accepted the, the rabbinic tradition that was expounded on the Torah. So, in other words, to keep the 613 laws of God in, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Old Testament. 
uh, rabbinic teaching on this law over the, over the course of the centuries had been written down and codified, which then added countless more inane man-made laws, all to kind of help keep the biblical law. And so it may have started with a, a genuine desire to keep God's law as God commands, but by this point, it had definitely just evolved into a self-righteous legalism. Not unlike the, uh, the denominational tradition I grew up in, where you didn't drink, you didn't smoke, you didn't dance, you didn't go to movies. Where do we find that in the Bible? You don't, but people talked about it like it was. And I know the history of that denomination. It started from a good, pl- a good place. It, it started from the desire to live holy lives as God commands us to. But over the years, it morphed into rules that became equal with Scripture, and those who broke them were judged accordingly. And so that's kind of what we see going on here. And as Mark continues, we're going to see Christ repeatedly speaking against them and their man-made laws. But make no mistake, they had tremendous influence Most of the scribes followed their ideology. We see them along here in verse 16 as well. They controlled the most powerful legal institutions like the Sanhedrin, the synagogues. They carried a lot of weight in society and with the people. So they're casting doubt on Christ, his disciples. Notice they sneakily went to them first. Would have probably kind of shaken them up a little bit. But Christ responds... And in his response, we find the fourth truth in Jesus' pursuit of sinners and what it models for us. We become friends with sinners. Christ responds in verse 17 with a very simple parable. Those who are well don't need a doctor, the sick do. That's pretty simple and it's pretty awesome. Everyone can understand that. There are people all over this planet dying because of lack of of basic medical care. So if I'm a doctor and I'm concerned by that, I'm not going to go to the CrossFit games, or as they like to say, they have the fittest audience on earth. They don't need me. I'm going to the sick. So I can save them. Doctors go to sick people. And Jesus is the ultimate doctor. He has the only cure for the death sentence of sin. Where else is he going to go but to sinners? So that's the first part of his response to the Pharisees, a parable. But the second part of his response is based on his authority to forgive sins. As God, the Messiah, the only physician with a cure, he came to call sinners, not the righteous. And once again, Luke's recounting of this event in chapter 532 adds a very important detail regarding that. He says, I came not only to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Again, we already covered that. That's what Jesus preached. Repent and believe. That's how we're saved. In other words, we recognize that that we are sinners worthy of death. We turn from sin and self, our death sentence, and we run to Christ and His pain, the price for our sins on the cross, and we receive eternal life. That is Christ's main concern. Like Chris so brilliantly made the point last week earlier in this chapter, when when Christ sees the paralytic, he doesn't first heal him. He first says, your sins are forgiven. As God, he has the authority to forgive sins. And as the great physician, he knows that man's greatest need was not to walk again, but forgiveness of sins. And it's the exact same thing for us. And this is what we follow Christ to. We talked about his command to follow him. Follow him where? Well, of course, we follow him to eternal life that we receive through him. 
But for those, who have, those of us who have been redeemed by Him, full of His grace, we follow Him to live, preach, and display the gospel of love. This is what we have been saved to, a life of love. And the greatest display of love that we can show is to preach repentance, just as Christ, who is love, did. And to do that means pursuing sinners like us. We become friends with sinners. This is the exact opposite of the Pharisees. Think about what the Pharisees are saying here. They recognize the people at the feast were sinners. They called them that. But as their spiritual shepherds, instead of offering help, they judge them. They don't care about them. They don't love them. Why would they have anything to do with them? They're disgusting sinners. How cold-hearted they are. Yet at times, some of us maybe can have some of these same tendencies. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this. I've been around church for a long time. And sometimes there's a, a tendency for some people, once you've sort of been saved for a little while, you're just kind of in your little Christian ghetto and hanging out with Christians, you kind of forget that your life was radically changed by Christ. And you look out at all the sinners, and there can be a tendency really to kind of be a little disgusted. They don't really want to hang out with those people. And seemingly rightly so. There's a lot of really messed up people doing a lot of really messed up stuff that are doing a whole lot of damage to themselves and other people. But guess what? In case any of us need a reminder, so were you. Every one of us are dirty sinners who have rebelled against God repeatedly and are worthy of nothing but eternal hell because of it. And even those of us who have been saved, we still sin even as we fight for holiness, never growing beyond the need of the gospel. We all desperately need Christ. We make our, our, ourselves friends with sinners, never forgetting that's who we are and it's what we've been saved from. So in love, we go to sinners with the gospel so they can be saved as we are. We live on mission as we are just constantly encouraged to be doing in this church, at work, at school, with, with friends, at Starbucks or Hidden House, Palmer. Everywhere, we pursue sinners with the gospel of repentance. But there's something very important to notice here. Jesus is called a friend of sinners repeatedly in the Gospels. We come across that a lot. But that doesn't mean he became like them so he could gain an ear. Nor does it mean he, he just hung out with them but, but never preached the Gospel. Those are two of the main issues that I see with what we might call lifestyle evangelism. You know, rather than standing on the street corner preaching, you befriend people, you live in relationship with them to be a witness to them. That's awesome. I endorse that 100%. That's exactly what Christ is doing here. But sometimes when we do that, a couple of things can happen. Like I said, first, they can influence us more than we actually influence them at times. Jesus never does that. He doesn't let a few F-bombs fly and have a few too many so they'll think he's cool and want to hear what he has to say. Jesus never joins them in sin. He came to save them from sin. But second, often people who practice lifestyle evangelism, it seems like they never get to the evangelism part. They never get to the preaching of the gospel. They think just living as a faithful witness is enough. It's not. It's a huge part of it. The gospel we preach must absolutely be backed up by our lives. But people aren't saved by our just living like Jesus. As we read in Romans 10, people are saved by preaching the gospel. Even Jesus didn't just live like Jesus. 
He, print, he preached repentance. He preached turning from sin because even as he loved them by simply just joining them in this meal, his ultimate love for them was displayed in his care for their eternal souls by preaching the gospel. And that's what we must do. But even as we do that, we remember earlier that we go as an aroma. We're an aroma of life to those that recognize their sinners and repent. But we go as an aroma of death to those who don't. And there will always be those like the Pharisees around us who think they're good. That's the irony of this interaction. And it's the fifth and final truth we see in Jesus' pursuit of sinners and what it models for us. We call sinners not the self-righteous to repentance. Now, let me offer a quick clarification. We call all to repentance. We don't know who will be saved, so we preach to all. I'm just trying to draw out the point. The, the call Christ is referring to in verse 17, calling sinners not the righteous, is the call that only those who recognize they are sinners will respond to. Those who actually are sinners but think they're righteous or who think that they can save themselves, will not receive the call and will not be saved. That's the irony. The Pharisees were not really the righteous. They were sinners just like everybody else. But they rejected their diagnosis by the perfect physician. It's like the person who goes to the doctor and hears, you have cancer throughout your entire body. You are headed toward certain death. But good news, we, we finally made a, a breakthrough. We have the cure so you can live, do you want the cure? And the answer, no, I'm good, doc. I don't have cancer. I feel fine. I eat well. I exercise. I'll be just fine. Don't worry about me. That may break the doctor's heart because he knows they're deluded and are going to die. But essentially, he has to turn them over to, to their delusion. He can't force them to take the cure. As we live on mission to pursue sinners with the gospel, this is one of the hardest parts of living on mission. We can't make people receive the call. It's our job to faithfully go to them and preach, but only God can save them. We can't. Just like our, our fictional doctor with the cure to cancer, it's heartbreaking when that happens. Actually, it's, it's horrifying because as Jesus does here, he has to turn them over their sinful delusion. And as long as they refuse to acknowledge their death sentence, because they're sinners, they won't be saved. But those who do recognize they're sinners in need of the Savior will receive the call and will be saved. That's totally antithetical to the Pharisees' religion. And guess what? The Pharisee religion is alive and well today. The vast majority of people around us every day, maybe some of us in here today, really in a way are kind of practicing the Pharisee religion. Ray Comfort of, uh, of Living Waters has to be one of the most prolific evangel uh, evangelists living today. Not in the sense of, of Billy Graham preaching to stadiums full of people, but this guy, he just goes out with a camera, walks up to people, and just witnesses to them over and over and over, hundreds of thousands of times. And he's local, so if you watch his videos, a lot of his videos are of local places like you know downtown Huntington and so on. So, I mean, this is actually the people all around us. And as he does this, he, he follows a, a very specific pattern. He, he's going to get to the preaching of the good news of Christ. That's his whole point. But before he does, he sets it up with questions like, do you think you're a good person? If, if you were to die today, are you going to go to heaven or hell? In other words, he wants to get people to see that they're sinners. 
Before he can get to their being a Savior, they have to recognize their need of a Savior in the first place because they're sinners. I have watched over the years Ray Comfort on these videos ask hundreds of people if they think they're a good person. Do you know what answer I've heard every single time without exception? Yes. Everyone thinks they're a good person. So when asked if they're going to go to heaven or hell, assuming they even believe such a thing, of course, everyone answers heaven. Everyone. See, there are Pharisees all around us who don't think they're sinners. They think they're the righteous. If pushed, they might admit to sin, but they think their good outweighs their bad, so they're okay. They don't see that they're headed toward certain eternal death. So this mission isn't easy. But just like Christ did, we pursue sinners anyway. Because as we began saying, whether they recognize it or not, we know the world's greatest problem is sin and that we have the only cure. And we remember that God saves, not us. Our job is to faithfully preach. So in love, we who have been bought by the blood of Jesus live on this mission of love, pursuing sinners with the message of the greatest love ever shown that Jesus pursued sinners, us not because we loved him or because we are so lovely, but because he is love. And in love, he suffered, died, and was resurrected, conquering sin and death for all who repent and believe in him. Receive the call to follow him, the perfect God who is love. And we trust him to save just as he did us. So I pray today that, that we can be overwhelmed and overjoyed with the love of Christ and his pursuit of sinners, and that full of that love, we would go and do likewise. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations, or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.